You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week in the BMJ, we published research on China's new rural cooperative medical scheme, which aims to provide health insurance to 800 million rural Chinese. The research looks at its effect on the operation and use of village health clinics, and we'll be finding out more about the background to the formation of the scheme and its place within the wider Chinese medical system. But before that, I'm joined by David Payne, who's here with his pick of this week's journal. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. Um, But I've got a couple of stories I'd like to talk about. The first one, it's had quite a bit of coverage in the newspapers today. This weekend in the UK, we put the clocks back. I know obviously in other countries they do similar things at different weekends, um, but around this time. And uh, there's a very good argument from Maya Hillman, who's a senior fellow emeritus from the Policy Studies Institute at Westminster University, who makes a very persuasive argument that we shouldn't actually do that in the interests of um, reduced accidents and increased leisure time and the argument that if we had these extra hours of daylight in the evening, we'd, we'd actually do a lot more exercise. And obviously that would have a good impact on obesity levels um, and so on and so forth. Sure. So what's he using to back up his argument? Well, basically, there's been a couple of studies. There was one done, I think, in 1988 by the Policy Studies Institute, which argued for this development. And I think uh, one that's just been published about the impact on Scottish life. And I think um, certainly in sort of the Scottish media, there's a lot of campaigning against this. I think it's felt that um, it will sort of plunge the country into darkness. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of fiddling for the sake of it. It will benefit um, people south of the border more. Mayor's article actually points out that actually there is also strong support in Scotland for this. So I'm rather intrigued what you think about it, Duncan, given that you hail from the far north of Scotland. Well, it's very dark up there in the winter. And uh, I used to go to school and come home from school in the dark. So anything that would allow you to, to have some more in the evening, more light in the evening, I think would be good. Right. OK, good. And you've got an article published this week. I know, I'm a bit shameful actually, Duncan, because I'm promoting one I've written. Um, And it's basically about health claims on labels. And um, the European Food Safety Authority, which is based in Parma in Italy, now has responsibility for um, doing a scientific evaluation um, every time a food company wants to make a health claim on food. And uh, last week in the UK media, there was a story about Yakult, which is a a yogurt drink, um, failing the probiotic test. So it it was, um, you know, sort of not allowed to make the claim that obviously it's good for gut function and immune function and, and so on and so forth. So that got some coverage. So this is a very timely article, I think, because I looked at um, you know the whole procedure, really, and the, you know, the allegation from the food industry that the European Food Safety Authority has been sort of too draconian and um, it's raised the science bar too high. So I've looked at um, you know, the, the industry standpoint and also sort of food policy experts um, and uh, you know, hopefully um, you know, looked at the issue and, and worked out you know, whether you know, there, is a, there is an argument that, the, the, that EFSA is being a little bit sort of too heavy-handed with the food industry. Sure. So um, did you have any favourite health claims when you were looking at all of them? Well, actually, I had the same ones that you had. I remember when you first proposed this feature, Duncan, you talked about prunes not being good for the, oh, you know, no evidence that prunes can stir a lazy bowel and um, um, glucosamine um, and uh, cranberries, you know, cranberries and um, urinary tract infections. Apparently, there's, you know, uh, very little scientific evidence for that. So I tried to sort of focus the feature really on, you know, what this means for doctors. And, uh, you know, when they get patients coming to them saying, you know, I've read that I can have a glass of cranberry juice and it will help out my UTI, you know, and, and what they should do now. So, um, Anyway, a shameful plug, but uh, I enjoyed writing it and um, I hope all our readers enjoy reading it. Sure. Thanks, David. Thank you. In the collective era, from the mid-1950s to early 1980s, there was almost universal health insurance coverage in China. Outside of the big cities, a cooperative medical scheme was established in the 1960s. It was a collective, community-based insurance programme, organised, planned and paid for by the government. 
It provided basic primary health care, preventative medicine and health promotion. Staffed by barefoot doctors with at least a couple of years of training, it reached 90% of all rural Chinese and substantially improved the health of China's population. The market-based economic reforms of 1978 set in motion a domino run in every part of Chinese society. The government stopped financing health care, and medical pricing and patients' out-of-pocket expenses soared. For a big proportion of the next two decades, the poor and seriously ill faced either financial ruin or just had to go without treatment. In 2003, the Chinese government started the new Rural Cooperative Medical Scheme to try and extend some coverage to the 800 million people living in rural China. I talked to Scott Rizal from Stanford University and Professor Meng, Executive Director of China Centre for Health Development Studies at Peking University, about what the new cooperative medical scheme and the wider changes that are taking place in the Chinese healthcare system. 2003 is a, is a year that many things happened in her sector, including the SARS outbreak. Yes. And the government had some rethinking about crucial problems and challenges in the healthcare uh, systems. So one of the conclusions is that the rural health systems have been ignored for a long time. Mm. That's why in the 2003, the central government decided to re-establish the CMS. We call that the new CMS. Mm. So one of the uh, characteristics of the new CMS is a government contribution to the premiums. And the individual farmers just contributed a very small portion of the total fund. So how much is that proportion? It's, uh, the government accounted for 80%. Right. So 20% from the individuals. The system sort of gradually evolved over time. It, it started in the mid-2000s uh, at a very low premium that households would pay. So they'd pay about 10 yuan or a pound per household member per year. Uh, it's then matched by the local and central government uh, in the early years, about three to one. Now, as it's evolved and they're trying to make the coverage sort of deeper, reimburse more, especially for for more catastrophic illnesses, um, <clears throat> the, the average the person pays about two pounds a person, and then it's matched almost five to one by local and central government funding. So it's built this pot up, and um, it's because they've premium is quite low and uh, they, they've tried to make access to, to getting care out of this quite easy. Uh, you've had an uptake of um, probably about 90% of eligible people are participating. So people now have coverage and the uptake has been massive, almost unimaginable to those not used to dealing with China's vast population. With such a sudden increase in coverage, is there a subsequent increase in demand that could cripple the healthcare system, unused to those numbers? I would think that if they would have gone from a completely patient pays all to everything is free system, you might have seen such a surge it would have swamped the system. But, but like I said, it started at a very low premium, and the, the, the pot of money available for reimbursements uh, worked out to about. 10%. The average person would have seen a reduction of health care expenses of about 10%. So, yes, there was a response, but, it, you know, it was more marginal rather than this, this flood. Now, they've expanded that gradually, and what you've seen is a sort of 
part of it has been reflected in rising use of health facilities. Uh, there's, it's clear that village clinicians are busier and township house, uh, health centers are busier. Uh, but they've been getting invested in it at the same time, and so the expansion on the supply side um, probably hasn't completely kept up with demand, but it's, uh, it hasn't let itself sort of be flooded with it yet. Uh, before 2003, the average uh, hospitalization rate may be 3%. The number of uh, people who were advised by doctors to be hospitalized, they cannot. But now the hospitalization rate had been increased to 9%. And are hospitals able to cope with this increased number of people coming into them? I think it's different in the different locations. So Western region, because of the, you know, the limited capacity of the hospitals, they are receiving much higher pressure. But in the Eastern region, I think it's much better because their capacity of the hospitals are much stronger. Scott and his team at Stanford have been looking at the use of the rural health clinics and have published some research in the BMJ this week. But usage is only really the beginning of the story. Obviously, health outcomes are more important. I asked Scott if, during his work, he'd seen an impact on the health of the rural population as a result of the scheme. I, yeah, that's the, because it was all rolled out at the same time, this is a hard thing to evaluate, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, incomes are going up at the same time that medical systems are being invested in, new technologies and drugs become available. And so all of these things work together, uh, hopefully, to, to give better health outcomes. And you see some better health, uh, health outcomes, but it's hard to pinpoint and say this was NCNS. Uh, we've been able to do in some of our work, find the mechanisms in the system that allow for easier access to health care. So if counties allow village clinicians to provide health care services to rural people, you see them using more health care and uh, somewhat better health outcomes. Uh, but again, I think it's two, two things. It's, it's, it's still a difficult question to untangle, but it's, and it's uh, maybe too early to say. So if we go back to the beginning, to 2003, as Professor Meng said, this was the start of the considerable upheaval in the Chinese healthcare system. The new rural cooperative medical scheme is only one of a raft of changes taking place, from training to public health and financing of drugs and treatments. I asked Professor Meng what all these changes were about. One of the largest changes is the perceptives about the health and the healthcare system from the politicians. You know, health is not so important as in UK or in US that can influence the election or influence many political issues. Sure. And, uh, but in recent years, because there are many emerging public health problems, including SARS outbreak, there are lots of uh, complaints from the general public about uh, the healthcare uh, utilization, the quality of healthcare, are also a big social events. So the politicians have seen the significance of health and healthcare as one of the social development paths. So with this new political kind of will, what kind of system do they do you think they want to build? In the new health sector reform uh, document, they raised the four systems. One is the 
medical system. The second is the public health system. Mm -hmm. The third one is the essential pharmaceutical policy. And uh, the last one is the social security system. We call it uh, the four systems. Right. Uh, this is a very broad, you know. Yes, very. <laughs> you, you covered everything. <laughs> yeah. In the UK, one of the integral parts of our health system is nice to to look at comparative and cost-effectiveness. And in the US, they're creating a similar institute, all with the aim of reducing costs and promoting best care. Has China got, or are you planning anything similar? We have no body doing this, but uh, the Ministry of Health is planning to set up organizations like NICE. And also the MOH had a memorandum of understanding with the NICE. Right. Uh, yeah, to seek the technical advice from the NICE to help China's government to establish an institution like this. And it seems an institution like that is needed. As I found out when I asked Scott, what's currently covered under the insurance? I think that it's sometimes somewhat of a puzzle. I, I, sometimes you get things that are left out. We are up in uh, a northwest province in a very poor part of the Lowe's Plateau, uh, very high roundworm infections, and uh, deworming uh, medicine, abimnesol, you know, one of the, the oldest, safest drugs there is, it's available at a very cheap price, uh, couldn't be covered by NCMS. And so, you know, uh, patients would come in and ask for it and make sure that they covered under their health insurance company. They wouldn't. And so they, you know, wouldn't treat their kids for for intestinal worms. You know, it's just one of those things that that got outside the planner circle. You know, when they're circumscribing, you know, uh, diseases and drugs from Beijing, you you miss them when they're way out in the periphery. Sometimes the neglected diseases, invisible diseases in particular. So the new rural cooperative medical scheme has now been instigated in all of China's provinces and covers 90% of the population there. As Scott and his colleagues' research published in the BMJ has found, it, along with other reforms in Chinese society, is starting to make a difference to the healthcare of the poor. But the project's in its infancy, and there will be problems to overcome in the future. If you think about the progress in, in, in CMS and rural healthcare, it's been, it's been impressive, right? It's gone from nothing to a very large in coverage terms um, that covers most of the medical needs. The, the real proof is going to come in the upscaling of this, you know, as it deepens more and, you know, as you start to get higher and higher demand responses as people, you know, get more money and demand better health care, you know, can the system stand up to it both in terms of quality of coverage and quantity of coverage. And, you know, the medical system is really pretty fragile. The doctors are marginally trained, not bad, at the health centers. Um, the barefoot doctors are, are good corpsmen, uh, you know, that do triage. Uh, but I think as people demand better health services that the system isn't going to hang together, then you put them on top of the big movement of populations into cities, you know, if, if in the next 10 years, as some economists have predicted, you know, there's two or 300 million people that permanently move into the cities, you know, who covers them with this? Uh, health system that's based back in their home community. So there's a, a, a lot of impressive things going on, but it's a, a fragile system that's under construction, and it, I think it depends 
how they build it from here on out if it's going to be a, a final success. Many poor, poor people are still facing problems uh, financially to uh, use health care. But in the next step, I think there are two uh, or three strategies. One is to continue to increase the premium level uh, from both the government and individuals. Mm. Because the level of premium or new sums fund is not adequate uh, to really address the financial barriers to healthcare for the people, especially for the low-income population. Sure. And the second one, I think the new CMS managers need to control the escalation of medical cost. The third one is to have some special arrangements to support the contribution of the low-income farmers. Actually, the Department of Civil Affairs is doing something, but they can do more. So that's all for this week. If you want to find out more about healthcare in China, the research we mentioned, plus an accompanying editorial, is available in this week's journal. We'll be back next week talking about what junior doctors should know about organ donation. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.